Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz and silent assassin Matt Costa. We are broadcasting live on WBSM, as well as streaming live on WBSM.com, the Radio Pup app, SpookySouthCoast.com, and YouTube, if you want to check us out on YouTube with the chat room feature. Uh, we're trying out, we're, we're running the new software, Matt Costa, on that tonight? We, have, uh, uh, we are, we are. So we're trying. Hopefully it looks well. Look, looks good so far in my yeah, end. Nice. We're we're trying some different things. Of course, we're we're constantly trying to improve Spooky South Coast, and uh, we have been messing around with some of the cameras. And Matt's been putting up YouTube clips that come off the GoPros, and uh, we've just been trying to overhaul all kinds of things. Right. Is there uh, anybody in the uh, YouTube chat today? Oh, there is. I, I want to say hi to. I see John in there, and 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 Matt, and pseudoname. Yeah, I was gonna say pseudoname is pretty good because he. Or she, I'm not sure, but they uh, they they let us know when it's when it's crappy. Right, I they like call it. us out, and and so far smooth. But we need start. to because we need we need to f- get on top of this. We need to fix it. So. Absolutely, and we welcome everybody to join us in the chat room on our YouTube channel. If you want to interact with the show while it's going on live, you can also interact with us by going to Twitter and using the hashtag Spooky Live. And we have Chris Balzano, our content director, is managing the YouTube tonight, and he's going to be putting out a whole bunch of different stuff with different hashtags and different ways for you to get involved in the conversation that way. And then also uh, we have the text line at 67664, although I sent a text to the text line as like a test like quite a while ago, and it still hasn't popped up. So we're going to have to get the station folks on that and uh, and try and figure out what that is. So maybe don't use the text line tonight, but you can always call us at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And I know a lot of you are listening to the show later on on podcast. Uh, we are podcast around the world on every major podcasting site and service. We get thousands of downloads a day, and the show has been downloaded millions of times over our 10 years on the air. We appreciate all that. We love all you folks that listen on podcast. We love all you folks that listen later on on the Dark Matter Radio Network. We fully support all these different ways of catching the show later on. But you've got to be here live. And you got to be here on Saturday night when it's going down, because that's when the most fun happens, and that's when it's the most interactive. So we depend on you for all of that. And speaking of interactive, apparently the movie The Conjuring 2 is so interactive with the audience that somebody actually died while watching the movie. Yeah, somebody, uh, somebody in the Philippines passed away of a heart attack during the climactic scene of the film. And the question is, and our, our friends over at theweekandweird.com What's we had that name first, but anyway, right. uh, Greg and Dana over at WeCanWeird.com they put up the story and asked the question like, "Is this not great marketing for the film?" And it's sad that somebody passed away, but if you are the studio, you're thinking to yourself, "This is this this is good for us." It's terrible for the person it happened to, but this is going to sell a lot of extra tickets to this movie. And I've seen the movie; it's. I'd probably say it's as good as the first Conjuring. I don't know if it will place The Exorcist as the, the best horror movie of all time, but it's you know it's it's a pretty decent movie. And as usual, there's some places that they should have gone that they didn't, and there's some stuff that they put into the movie that anybody who studied the Enfield case knows isn't true. But overall, it's very entertaining. It's Hollywood. That's I understand that, and uh, it's always going to kind of be that way. And speaking of Hollywood, we're going to be joined in just a little bit by. Probably Matt Costa and I's favorite film director. Oh, I know, right? Uh, we, we, this this guy is just 
he's like a god to us. And we are so happy that he could join us for just a few moments tonight. However, it's going to be for kind of a story that is a little bit ridiculous. And we're, we're going to get into what the story is behind it. But if you go to WBSM.com and also on SpookySouthCoast.com, we have the story up there as well. But the story came out a couple of days ago that here locally on the South Coast, the Dartmouth Mall AMC movie theater was showing this new film called Range 15. And basically the movie is a horror comedy about military member, military veterans battling a zombie apocalypse. And the director of the film is Ross Patterson. The film was written by a number of military veterans who wanted, you know, they kind of got tired of the way that uh, you know, the, the military was portrayed in movies, and they wanted to come up with something that was accurate but also fun. And they wanted to make a movie that would be for veterans to watch and enjoy and for active military to watch and enjoy. And so they wrote this script. They came up with this idea. Ross Patterson came on board as a director, and he's one of the stars of the film, and put a signature touch on it, of course. If you've ever seen any of his movies like FDR, American Badass, or Helen Keller vs. the Night Wolves, you know what kind of Ross's tone is. So this movie is put together, they get some funding, but they also go to Indiegogo to try to get more funding, uh, and they get an overwhelming response. It's the number four highest grossing campaign in the history of Indiegogo, I believe, if that's that's accurate. Ross can let us know in a few moments. But they got, they were looking for, I think, $350,000, and they got over a million, because people came out and supported the creation of this film, Range 15. And it's a combination of the people behind Ranger Up and, and um, what's the other company? Is it uh, Article 15? The, the, the yes, two different so, yeah. military clothing companies that have combined together to put this movie up. So it's called Range 15. And so the movie was showing at the AMC Dartmouth Theater, and the newspaper and the radio station, the local media around here, catches wind of the fact that the Dartmouth police put extra police presence at the theater Wednesday night during the showing of this film because there had been a threat against the film. Not a specific threat against the Dartmouth Theater, but just a generic threat toward the AMC theater showing this film. And the police officials did not get any more in-depth with us about what the actual, uh, what the actual threat was. Uh, or what the reasoning was, they just said that, you know, this generic threat, this general threat had come out, so they felt it was in the best interest to put on extra police presence. Nothing happened. But I kind of want to get to the bottom of this story. So we're going to have joining us in about two minutes now. Matt's going to get him on the line for us. We're going to have Ross Patterson joining us. You got him on already? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you want to do it now, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> look. So uh, he's going to join us, and he's going to talk with us about the film and about this, you know, this little bit of controversy that's surrounding the film. If you've never seen one of Ross's films, go out and watch. You can watch them. You can stream them online. They're available to stream online. They're well worth it. Moniz, have you ever seen? Did you get to see FDR American Badass? No, sorry. Oh, man. Uh, a lot of them are free, too. Yeah, you can watch, like, the whole movies online. Uh, um, that's a good part about it. He, he just he wants it out there. He doesn't necessarily. What's it, Darnell Dawkins or something? Darnell Malfa- Dawkins, uh, uh, guitar, 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 mouth guitar legend. legend or something. Guitar, yeah. Mouth guitar legend. Mouth guitar, yep. Uh, That's the, good. There's uh, the pool boy. Yeah, uh, Drowning the Fury. Um, that one's good. That has uh, Kevin Sorbo and Danny Trejo in it. Danny Trejo's in this one, too. Right, right, yeah. right. 
So, I mean, people love working with him, and he gets a lot of big stars. So we're actually going to have him joining us in just a couple minutes here on the program, and uh, we'll find out more about the story. Then coming up later on in the program, we'll be joined by Ken Gerhard. You know him as a a cryptozoologist, and you've seen him on things like Monster Quest and some of these other uh, cryptid-related TV shows. We're going to be talking uh, quite a bit about the Jersey Devil tonight, as well as other cryptids. And you can join again in the conversation with us by going to the YouTube channel and jumping on board the uh, the chat room there. Uh, you can also jump on Twitter and get involved with the conversation there as well. And if you're joining in the conversation about the film, about Range 15 as we're talking about it, you can also use the hashtags Range 15 and Ranger Up because those are what they're putting out there to help generate interest for this film and to help kind of keep it out there in the public eye because, again, this is a movie that was made by veterans for veterans and hopefully you know the general public and, and civilians pick up on some of the humor but there's a lot of jokes in it that are just for the military and i think that that's great because you know it it, it really gives them kind of a sense of community and, and everything going on together so it's going to be wow that was quick it's almost like you have a, a history of screening calls <laughs> and setting things up over the phone. Uh, so we actually have joining us on the line right now. Oh, we're going now. Uh, we're good? Good. All right. Good. We have joining us on the line Ross Patterson, the director of the new film Range 15. Yes, how are you? Good evening. Oh, my God. This is like this is like a geek out moment for Matt and I to actually finally get you on the show. Stop right there. I'm blushing through the phone. You can't see it, but I am. <laughs> I've got my freedom boner. Right there, you go. Absolutely. I hope I hope you do. I hope you do. So you're a blanket for it as well. You're a, you're an award-winning filmmaker. You are a New York Times best-selling author with "At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed," the first romance novel for men. You've done all these great films that uh, we were mentioning before. How did you get involved with the Range Fifteen project? Wow, uh, you, you know there, there was a lot of there was a lot of prodding. Um, there, there was a lot of uh, uh, there was there was some fireworks sent over my house. It was a limousine sent with uh, Puerto Rican women. I don't even know why that race they chose. Um, <laughs> no, uh, in all honesty, I had uh, I'd gotten an email from a Jared Taylor um, who had said to me, um, hey, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love the FDR American Badass. Uh, I'm a veteran, and I have this script, and I think you are the only guy who could do this, this movie. Um, I read the script and, and I got right back to him and uh, I said, you're right, I think I am the only guy that can do this movie and let's, let's give it a go and see, see, see how it all shakes out and and this movie was uh, and, and if you go online and you watch the you know the original uh, campaign video that was put out to try to get it made, this is a movie that was was made by these veterans, created by these veterans because of the way that they felt they'd been depicted in other films. Correct, and, and and again, like with the body of work that I I done, you know, once I opened up my production company, I was essentially making the craziest comedies that I wanted to see and that I, I wanted my friends to see. Uh, little did I know there was another community out there that had just the right amount of dark sense of humor that I had, and they wanted to make the same type of movies that I was making, but starring veterans and for veterans. Uh, so, so we we were able to gel almost immediately from from the the, the minute I flew in and got to meet these guys first. 
and and you were able to get some some pretty notable veterans to to be in the film. You have some uh, some Medal of Honor award winners who are part of this film. I mean, this is something that everybody seemed to want to get involved with. Yeah, you know, everybody wanted to get involved in it. Um, but I will say this: there, there was other veterans who thought that the, they pushed it too hard, that the script was too aggressive, um, that the comedy was was too. Uh, gosh, I don't want to say pu- uh, pushing the envelope because it, it not only pushed the envelope, but it ripped it to shreds. But uh, uh, there were some veterans who did not want to get involved. Um, so the people that you see in this film actually wanted to be in this film, and they, they wanted to do this uh, for the troops. Um, I, th- I think often there's a, there's a misconception in Hollywood where, you know, you hear out of everyone all the time that, oh, my gosh, we support the veterans. We support troops. We su- we support you know our U.S. military. Uh, this was the first time that a script came along where it was actually like, all right, let's put your money where your mouth was. Some of them, some of them did it. Some of them didn't, uh, and and some of them didn't do it for a lot of money, which was shocking. Well, and you had a number of, of Hollywood stars in this film. Of course, you have a great repertoire of, of actors that you work with. Uh, you, you know, obviously, when it comes down to being a Ross Patterson movie, you're, you're going to look for Richard Riley. You know, you're going to look for some of these other people who are in the film. But, you know, you got William Shatner in there. you got Danny Trejo in there. Keith David, who, to me, is, you know, just in the trailer. I'm like, this guy's just going to crack me up every time he's on camera. Yeah, and he, and he crushed. Um, and, you know, what I told them was, look, you guys may not ever be able to make a movie again the rest of your lives. So whoever is in this movie, cast who you want. Cast your dream actors. Really go after the people that you've always wanted to, to work with and that you, you've admired on screen or seen, you know, overseas when you were in, um, you know, deployed. And uh, I'll see if I can make it happen. Um, Shatner was number one on their list. He was the first one to sign on. Um, Danny Trejo was another fan favorite of theirs who – had been in a few of my movies before, and then, uh, you know, Sean Astin. Uh, when they came back with Keith David, Keith David was someone I had tried to hire for, I think, five movies in a row, but his, he was always booked. Hmm. Um, for whatever reason, this our schedules matched up on this. He was able to do one day, and that was the, the exact day that we needed him for, and it was uh, that, that one was some movie magic on that one. So, of course, you know, we're talking about Range 15, which is the new film by Ross Patterson, and it's been out, it's out in theaters now. It's gonna, there's an even wider release coming, but it was shown here on Wednesday night at a local theater, and we have the news story that there was uh, some sort of a, a threat made to AMC theaters for showing the film. The police didn't give us any kind of details. Do you know anything about this threat and, and what exactly the, the beef was with the film? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I mean, you know, what happened was, uh, the trailer exploded online. It, it got about, uh, collectively, I would say six to seven million views. Um, the interest started to build among the public, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And the next thing you know, we're in over 500 theaters. Uh, we started to get listed in 600 theaters. Um, the horrific incident in Orlando happened, and, uh, you know, that was related to ISIS and, and, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to swear on this, probably, right? Uh, no, but we have, we do okay. have a dump button, uh, so uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, with 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 the BS that it, you know, happened there, and and whatever their beliefs are against America and, and against you know veterans and the troops, and uh, our movie was you know released the same week as that that tragedy happened. 
And there was uh, a memo put out, you know, amongst their organization of, hey, let's let's attack veterans, let's attack movie theaters. And this movie at, at this time was was the uh, the perfect target, if you will. So you were targeted uh, by ISIS with this film. Cor- correct. Uh, wow. I, I've, I, I, we probably get calls from 10 to 12 cities about this film in particular. Um, you know, luckily most of them were, were, uh, I, I want to say handled in a, in a very thoughtful manner where, you know, I, I, me personally, the last place you want to attack, you know, as a theater is, uh, a, a place that there's going to be a million veterans at during the week. Um, so the, uh, the, the conceal and carry there. And most of these theaters was pretty high. Right, yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't go. I, I wouldn't want to go against any of these guys, in particular any of these guys that are starring in the movie. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think uh, you know. In the end, look, the, the movie opens. Uh, it was phenomenal. I, it was safe. Nothing happened, and and I, I think that in the end, having a movie, you know, written by veterans, starring veterans, produced by veterans, uh, with with the, uh, the the biggest veteran organization supporting it, um, nothing was going to happen in these theaters in the end, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and I think that if, if anything, you know, it, it kind of shows that uh, – by making this movie, you know, it's it's kind of put some fear into ISIS and, and showing them that this is what happens when you have a military united and a people united behind them and that no matter what kind of threats they make, in the end they're empty because they're going to back down from the collective might. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, Tim Kennedy was the first one, you know, at, when the first report came through that they possibly, you know, might want to attack this film, uh, Tim Kennedy, who's one of the stars in the movie, one of the producers in the movie, and just an all-around American badass from the UFC, and in a, in a, he was also special ops. Um, it's like, do you really want to tussle against that guy? Right, exactly, um, yeah. No, no, you don't. Um, so uh, he came out and made a statement and said, look, uh, everybody stay vigilant. Um, go see the movie. Be who you are on a regular basis. Just know that, you know, that there, will, there will be at least... 10 to 20 veterans in every movie across the country, and then nothing will happen to you. You you will be safe on our watch, and you can go see Range 15 and not have to worry about anything happening to you while you're seeing this film. So, Ross, how can people go out and see Range 15? Uh, obviously, the release is just going to continue to grow, I would assume. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, their screening is going on tonight as well. Uh, they'll be going on through most of September. Um, you can go to tug.com. That's T-U-G-G.com. Uh, it, it, like I said, it's playing about 600 cities across America. You can buy tickets. Uh, if it is not in your city, you can request your own theater um, in your city, and, and uh, Tug will set it up overnight for you. And uh, they have a minimum threshold that, like, 20 to 30 people have to uh, reserve tickets for your, for your theater, and the theater owners will show it. It's, it's an unbelievable deal for, for an independent film. And uh, we're, we're grateful they exist. And, again, everybody can go to TUGG.com and buy tickets. Well, hopefully we can put together a big enough screening out here that we can get you to come out here and uh, and hang out. I know that you've done that with some of the screenings of your other films. Listen, we don't usually do this here on the show. We've had a lot of, you know, big celebrities on the program. We've never asked them to do it. But I'm going to put you on the spot. The name of our show is Spooky South Coast. Can you just uh-huh. can you tell the people that they should listen to Spooky South Coast, but can you do it as St. James, St. James? 
the, the name of the show is Spooky South Coast? Yes. Uh, S-O-U-T-H-C-O-A-S-T, correct? Yes, Spooky South Coast, South Coast of Massachusetts. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is St. James Street, James. I hate road abbreviations, so I pronounce my last name. Right now, you should probably be sitting by your fireplace with a warm glass of scotch, no ice. Listening to Spooky South Coast. Thanks, America. You're not only doing me a favor, but you're doing yourselves a favor, too. Well, I thank you, good sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, Ross, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, definitely keep us up to date with the film. And, of course, we'll keep following you on Facebook and on Twitter at St. James, St. James. I will. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, take care, and, uh, and good luck with the film. I hope it's a huge, huge success for everybody. Same and look, F ISIS. Uh, go go see, go see the movie that a, that America's ever wanted to make, the best movie they've ever wanted to make. Absolutely. Thank you so much, sir. Have a good night. <laughs> you too. And that is that is it. Ross Patterson. Uh, he is the director of the new film Range Fifteen. Definitely go out there and check it out. And uh, wow, see that Matt? We got St James, St James. I'm sorry, St James Street, James, to actually uh, you know give us a little know, pop great. spooky South Coast. That's great. I was a little nervous to ask. I was a little nervous, but I thought we had to do it. You got to. You got to. So, all right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Ken Gerhardt to talk about cryptids and especially the Jersey Devil. And, of course, we'll take your calls throughout the night at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. It's Spooky South Coast. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And now we are broadcasting on WBSM as well as live on our YouTube channel. If you want to check that out, uh, just go to YouTube and type in Spooky South Coast. You'll find our channel or the direct link is youtube.com slash user slash Spooky South Coast. Or you can just go right to SpookySouthCoast.com and get it. And uh, you'll be able to see the YouTube video feed as well as the chat room there as well. Plus, you can jump into the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag SpookyLive or using SSC Gerhard because our guest tonight who is joining us on the line right now is Ken Gerhard. He's a widely recognized cryptozoologist and field investigator for the Center for Fortean Zoology as well as a fellow of the Pangaea Institute and consultant for several research organizations. He has traveled the world searching for evidence of mysterious animals and legendary beasts including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, enigmatic winged creatures, and even werewolves. And uh, he is joining us tonight for the first time. It's It's been a while that we've been trying to get him on, and we're so glad that he could finally join us. Ken, good evening. How are you? Good evening, gentlemen. It's uh, definitely an honor to be here on your show this evening. Oh, and the honor is all ours, because you are somebody who, if, you know, it, it, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to research these type of creatures to be able to go down this path of trying to prove if they really do exist and to be able to go into this knowing that you could spend a lot of time, a lot of years researching this without getting any closer to the truth. But knowing that you've been in it for as long as you have been, you must feel like you've gotten pretty close on, on some of the existence of these creatures. Well, uh, truthfully, I can't, you know, I can't say that I, that I have, but, um, you know, as you kind of uh, suggested, I mean, this is a 
prolonged investigation that literally should take decades. And, uh, you know, the, the field of cryptozoology was actually kind of officially started in the 1950s. And uh, several generations of cryptozoologists and, and quote-unquote monster hunters have already come and gone. And they kind of passed the we pass the mantle on, you know what I'm saying? So I mean, I, I, it's something I'm passionate about, and uh, I would love to solve any of these mysteries or, or, you know, find evidence that some of these cryptids exist. But uh, I also am realistic enough to to understand that I may too be passing that mantle on to to the next generation to to keep up the hunt. But what's interesting about it is, as you become, you know, part of this legacy of the monster hunters, you're when you're doing it, it's, it's almost like everybody's research is just adding another piece into the puzzle or peeling away another layer of something, and that it, it's almost like it has to be a conglomeration of different minds that come together to try and solve this question. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think we do have a, a, a solid network of investigators around the world, people that are very passionate about the subject matter, and also understand that, you know, it is a, a pursuit where you have to be extremely objective and uh, somewhat skeptical and scientific, you know, because uh, it, it is a, uh, these are extremely remarkable theories that these things could exist. Some of these large megafauna creatures could be out there in remote wilderness areas still undiscovered by science. And, uh, of course, we've reached a stage, or perhaps we've always been at the stage, when we really require the hard physical evidence that science demands. So there has to be a physical body, you know, bones, DNA, something that can prove conclusively that some of these things exist, uh, even though in many cases we have a significant amount of circumstantial evidence, lots of anecdotal eyewitness accounts, uh, photographic evidence, though largely not very good, but there's a couple things in there that we uh, might, you know, are compelling, so uh, passive footprints and so forth. Um, so it's, you know, it's frustrating because we, we you know, that, that hard physical evidence has been elusive. But uh, it's very promising when you look at the big picture and all of the circumstantial evidence uh, kind of added up into one big pile. Well, you mentioned, you know, the need to have, you know, especially these days, more modern times, uh, needing to have, you know, hardcore physical evidence to, to be able to prove some of these creatures exist. And one of the ways that people have been... Uh, going about that by going out there and trying to research these creatures out in the field has been through the explosion lately of reality television shows. And, and you're somebody who has done a lot of television work. You've been featured on a number of programs. And uh, we've gone kind of through the same thing with ghost research where you have to question yourself at some point, you know, ask yourself the question at some point, are, is all of this media attention that's out there now for cryptids, is it helping or hurting the pursuit of trying to find these elusive beasts? Well, that's a good question, and, uh, you know, uh, quite frankly, guys, I mean, there's a dance that goes on, uh, you know, between the uh, uh, the co-host of the show, the producers, the networks, and, you know, because uh, obviously television, uh, you know, there's an objective there, that's an underlying objective, which is, you know, to get people to watch the show and to get good ratings, and, you know, it is a business, so that's understood. It's also a form of entertainment, so it has to kind of captivate the audience and, and tell them a story. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, there, you are trying to present something that's largely viewed as a myth or a legend or, or, or a made-up story and trying to present that as a possibility, as something that the, the, the viewer at home should consider and maybe open their minds that, oh, maybe there is something to this. Um, you know, so that said, 
Um, I, I have done a number of television shows. I've been very lucky. And the reason I say that is I think that the television, the reality television overall, is, is very important because it shines a spotlight on these subjects. Uh, it gets, hopefully, people at home to, to think about it, to talk about it at the water cooler next day at work. Um, you know, and, and you want to put as much good information out there as possible because certainly there are a lot of hoaxers and there are a lot of people out there with dubious information and selfish motives that are putting bad information out there. And I would, you know, if I can put myself in a position to try to put the, the right kind of information out there, uh, and then just hopefully the editors will, uh, you know, <laughs> cut it in a way that uh, comes across as genuine. Well, I know that, in, you know, again, in, in researching ghosts, I kind of know how to go about when I hear a report, and I know kind of what it is that I'm looking for and, and what it is that I might be researching. But with the full gamut of monsters that are out there, how do you... You know, kind of center in on what it is that you're going to be looking for. Do you? Do, I mean, do you have to get kind of an eyewitness account before you have an idea of what it is that you could be chasing after and in following some of these leads? Well, uh, first of all, there's always a clarification that has to be made because the broad view, the perception of cryptozoology or cryptids, is that it includes a lot of these really whimsical sort of creatures, things like the Mothman and, and Dogman and lizard man and uh, mermaid things like that that are really not very you know obviously not zoological in nature and and cryptozoology really was started by actual zoologists that wanted to keep it as scientific as possible it's the search for undocumented animal species theoretically that could include something like bigfoot or uh, the loch ness monster or thunderbirds or black panthers there are things that are viably zoologically viable, you know, that could be large species out there that are undiscovered. And then when you look at some of these more whimsical things, then we typically refer to those as zooform. And uh, zooform because they take the take on physical characteristics very similar to animals, uh, in many cases combining them with the features of human and so forth. Um, but I think most cryptozoologists and, and in fact, most uh, Fortean researchers view those zooform creatures as kind of supernatural in nature you know, almost more on the paranormal side than the physical flesh-and-blood side. So there's already a distinction in, in your mind between, you know, what might actually be something that you're going to chase down and what might be a little bit more fantastical. Well, yeah, you know, and again, you know, I'm a traditional cryptozoologist, and I, I take that very seriously. So I have to look at things in terms of the, you know, the known scientific, uh, you know, t uh, taxonomy, uh, the fossil history, uh, relationships and systematics, you know, you know, sound biology, you know, is there a habitat to support this creature? What does it eat? Where can it hide? Things like that, um, as opposed to just kind of dreaming up highly whimsical creatures and saying anything is possible, this thing could exist, because in some cases it's, it's very hard to understand how something, uh, for example, like the Mothman could evolve, you know, it, it just doesn't fit into the paradigm of the natural world. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of the the problem with with researching things as you do is, you know, you could end up with something that seems like a very legitimate flesh and blood possibility that because it catches somebody off guard or because they can't quite categorize what it is in their own mind, you know, it's almost, it's almost like playing the telephone game where with the original sighting gets distorted by the time you've gotten some of the reports of it. Well, that's true, and. Um in the field of cryptozoology, we do largely um, depend on ethnological evidence, and that is, you know, uh, eyewitness accounts, 
and also, um, you know, legends, native legends and historical legends and things like that. But as I said earlier, there's, there's not a lot of physical evidence. So you are putting a lot of stock into these eyewitness accounts. And what's promising in some cases is that you can build a pretty strong model or archetype of a particular cryptid based on um, eyewitness descriptions that are very consistent. And, you know, that's a Bigfoot is a perfect example all over the world with Bigfoot and the Yeti and the Yeren. And, you know, you have all of these different versions of a Sasquatch all over the world. And people describe them essentially the same. They're manlike. They're much taller than us, like six to nine feet tall. They're very muscular. They don't have a neck. They're very hairy. They don't have, you know, they have uh, kind of pointy heads. So, so that's that's kind of compelling from a circumstantial point of view, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, I would understand why scientists and skeptics would say, well, that's, you know, that is not necessarily that compelling. It just could be a kind of a common uh, pers- perspective of what a wild man would look like. I mean, certainly, though, there's enough of, as you mentioned, you know, these sightings of, of the Sasquatch, creature, Sasquatch creatures all over the world that seem pretty consistent. So when you hear that, I mean, that must make you think that there is either, you know, the existence of this creature as people have described it over the years or at least something that is feeding into this belief, some real flesh and blood creature that's feeding into this legend. Well, that's, that's my position. But, you know, there are skeptics that will argue and say, well, the there's you know there's this thing called the global consciousness and we basically um you know for thousands of years ago or even millions of years ago um there were these kind of man-like creatures um you know the early pre-human forms and some of them were very large perhaps like Bigfoot or sasquatch and maybe we basically carry this shared remembrance of a time when our ancestors lived alongside these things and were scared of them and we've passed down this kind of belief system around the world, and that's why the descriptions are so similar, because it's part of our psyche or, you know, our unconscious mind. So, See, to me, that's, um, just, that's just as cool as it actually being a real living being. You know, the, the fact that we could kind of, uh, you know, basically kind of thought form project it with our collective consciousness. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, you know, again, I, I, I tend to look at these things as biological problems. That, you know, I think they're... Uh, These are basically elusive, highly elusive animals, in some cases maybe highly elusive and intelligent animals that are living in very remote areas. They're very rare, and, um, you know, we simply have not discovered them yet or have not found physical proof that they exist. Uh, we have a chat room going on our YouTube channel, and uh, we have a question from Pseudoname in the chat room. He wants to know how you deal with hoaxers or practical jokers, especially when they, you know, they come out with a movie and they have all this promotional stuff that will come out, and they, you know, they always try to do this like viral marketing type stuff. How do you kind of weed out those hoaxers, and and is there a way that you can do it, or is it kind of just, you know, you've got to actually start looking into it before you can be sure? Well, that that has been a big problem within the field of cryptozoology for. Uh, you could perhaps say since the 19th century, if you wanted to, you know, consider some of the things that like P.T. Barnum and other showmen were trying to pull off back then by presenting things as real life specimens or monsters. Um, you know, the real problem in this day and age is that, of course, that it is the technology has come so far that it's very easy for people to fake uh, videos and photographs and things like that. So I personally have really moved away from any type of photographic evidence. I just don't think that, you know, at this point in the game, it just can't be considered as as compelling, you know. And, in fact, over recent months, um, you know, there have been several 
quote-unquote Bigfoot videos that have come out on YouTube and elsewhere that were, you know, quickly revealed to be hoaxes and, and very cleverly staged by people that were just trying to get a million hits on their YouTube channel or whatever. So um, you have to look at the motive and so forth. And um, we've actually tried to, to question some of these hoaxers on the show before, and even then, you know, even when you're caught in the hoax, you still can't get a straight answer out of some of them. Yeah, and, you know, that's, that's the other thing is just learning how to read people, you know, when you're doing conducting interviews and so forth. And I, I do have colleagues and, and friends who are, you know, in law enforcement, and you learn a little bit about interrogation techniques. And when I say interrogation, it doesn't mean, you know, that I sit them down in a chair and put a spotlight in their face, you know, <laughs> to make them sweat. It's, just, it's about consistency. So oftentimes you'll conduct several interviews over a certain period of months, and you're looking to see if, this, you know, the, the answers and the descriptions are consistent, you know, or if there are embellishments going on or if they can't, you know, make up their minds. You know, you know little things like that. Um, but, but it certainly is difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff sometimes. Yeah, I, I can, uh, you know, I can almost picture you like shining that light. Like, where were you in 1967 near Yakima, Washington? You know, like just uh, <laughs> trying to mess with people there a little bit. But uh, certainly, we can get more. Uh, we're definitely going to get more into the Jersey Devil coming up in, in the next segment of the show, and we can get more into kind of some of the the legend of that. But uh, just on a on a broad basis, and we only have about two minutes left here in the hour. But is it is it sometimes just as important to? document and follow the legend as it is to try to document and follow the flesh and blood flesh and blood creature well yeah absolutely and um you know cryptozoology it it, it encompasses as i said earlier uh, many different disciplines of science including uh you know paleontology zoology and and so forth but you also have to know quite a bit about um you know history and folklore and legends you know that's kind of the the other aspect you know and there's there's a there's a solid reason for this and that is that um many of the remark truly remarkable animal discoveries of the past century and there have been some really amazing ones all of those creatures started out as quote-unquote legends or myths you know uh they they were not viewed as being viable animals by the scientific community um, they were considered to, to essentially to be uh, native legends. And then once these animals were discovered, and the gorilla is a perfect example, the Komodo dragon, the okapi, um, the Vukuang ox, and so forth, once all of these animals were discovered, then, you know, we kind of had to look back and say, well, maybe we should have paid more attention to those native legends. <laughs> I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, the... We should sometimes we should have to I guess have a little bit of faith in um, you know some of these other cultures that we sometimes look down on and say well you know they're just very superstitious and you know they're making things up or whatever but sometimes they, they you know they really are trying to tell us something. Well, I, I certainly think that we have a number of those legends here uh, in the south coast of Massachusetts area where we are that mm-hmm. you know could could very well turn out to be. Uh, actual, you know, flesh and blood creatures, but we've also had the problem here too, where we've become so settled in this area. I think because this is kind of the oldest part of the country, and so we've kind of pushed a lot of these things uh, as far into the woods as we can. And there's mm-hmm. plenty of other places where these legends can can endure a little bit better because you know they still have that open space. So we can get into all that because one of those places where there's all that open space is the Pine Barrens, and oh, yeah. that has given birth to one of the the greatest uh, legends of all time. So uh, we'll definitely come up uh, we'll definitely cover that in the next segment of the show but can uh where can everybody go to find out more about you during the break well uh 
You could check out my website, which is KenGerhard.com, K-E-N-G-E-R-H-A-R-D. And I also have a Facebook fan page, which is Ken Gerhard Cryptozoologist. All right, so and people can reach out to you through, uh, through both of those, I assume? Absolutely. All right. Well, we will, uh, again, as I mentioned, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk about the Jersey Devil. And no, we're not talking about the hockey team because this is the actual story. And, you know, in the Pine Barrens are one of those places where, uh, from everybody that I, I've never been, but everybody that I know that's been there, and I know people that live there, they say once you walk in there, they're like, yeah, as weird as you feel in the Bridgewater Triangle, you feel ten times weirder there. So we'll talk about that coming up in the next half hour as well. Uh, real quickly, if you want to go to SpookySouthCoast.com, uh, we have links there for the upcoming event with uh, Stephanie and Nicole that they're having at uh, Stephanie's place at, uh, at, at uh, Work at Burke Wellness, and also a link for the next Legend Trips event. So we'll be back in just a moment with more Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And by the way, we are not only are we streaming on our YouTube channel, but we are trying for the first time tonight, we're trying Facebook Live as well. So we got Matt Moniz is trying to monitor that and see what's going on. It may be going well. It it's may freezing not be. on my computer, but that could just be my computer. You know, we don't we don't really know everything's going on, but you can try it out. I sent out the link on Twitter. And, uh, and of course, you can see it if you go to the Spooky South Coast Facebook page. So, yep, I see Matt Costa moving it around right now. So there you go. So you can try and watch it that way as well. But if you are watching on Facebook Live, you know you can always go to the YouTube live stream if you want to do that. See, so much messing around, so much doing. And speaking of uh, video, if you're watching on Spooky South Coast right now on, on the video on YouTube and Facebook Live, you can see that I'm wearing a shirt for P3 Paranormal. This is a local organization uh, here in Massachusetts. Uh, Bill and Karen Prince are the, the main representatives behind this, and uh, they are a great group uh, located out of the Bill Ricca area of Massachusetts. So if you want to get involved, you can just look up P3 Paranormal and uh, see if you want to you know, maybe have them come along for an investigation, or you know, if you just want to find out more, you can reach out to them. They're on Facebook as well. So I highly recommend great people. And, uh, and of course, if you want to send us a shirt, to wear here on the show. You can send it for any one of the Spooky Crew members or send one for all of us or hats or whatever. This is how we're going to help promote paranormal groups because we just can't feature them all on the air. So we figured this is kind of a good compromise to be able to put the word out there about different paranormal groups without having to, you know, have it interrupt the content of the program. So P3 Paranormal, thank you for the shirt. And if you want to send them to us, our address is right on SpookySouthCoast.com. You can send them to us here at WBSM and we'll be glad to wear them on the air as long as they fit. Don't don't try and squeeze me into a medium. It just won't work. So joining us tonight, we have our guest, Ken Gerhardt. He is a cryptozoologist, and uh, you've seen him on a variety of different television shows. And uh, Ken, one of the things that we, we really want to talk to you about is the Jersey Devil, because this is one of my all-time favorite legends, in addition to being you know, the, the possibility that there could be an actual creature. But from all, from all the accounts, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is actually a, a flesh-and-blood creature. Yeah, um, you know, people often do ask me about the Jersey Devil. It's a, it's a fabulous uh, American legend, perhaps one of the best ones that involved a, a, a strange creature. 
Um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, I would kind of label the Jersey Devil as more of a zoo form than an actual cryptid. And the reason being that, first of all, you've got this <clears throat> fabulous description. And uh, keep in mind that this, the descriptions actually do change a little bit uh, depending on who you talk to. But the, <clears throat> the basic archetype is a three-and-a-half-foot-tall creature that stands on its hind legs, kind of body like a kangaroo. Um, a long snout or muzzle, like a, some people have described it as looking like a dog, perhaps, or a horse. Um, some people have described it as having um, horns on its head and also glowing red eyes. Uh, it is generally described as having kind of bat-like wings and a long forked tail, kind of like a devilish tail. So you're really talking about a chimera, a mixture of, of all kinds of animal traits kind of all lumped into one. So... Again, there's nothing in the fossil history that really uh, comes to mind. Uh, moreover, you have this this backline, this story of uh, you know how the Jersey Devil was essentially um, you know the the spawn of a of a either a witch or a woman who was involved in witchcraft or who had cursed her child. Um, so I mean, you have, you have all these fabulous elements, and moreover, there you know the the, the eyewitness descriptions are scant. I mean, you have one period in early. Uh, part of 1909, when for about three weeks there were newspaper stories uh, all over the Atlantic coast about the Jersey Devil who was being sighted on a daily basis, tracks were being found, and then things got pretty quiet pretty quickly. And uh, then you have these, and you know, since that time you just have these random uh, reports, uh, 1930, uh, 1950s, I believe. Uh, I, I've interviewed a gentleman who claims he saw perhaps saw the Jersey Devil in 1977. And, you know, so it's, it's just one of the more frustrating cases as an investigator because there's not a lot of really compelling evidence there. But as a creature story and, an, uh, you know, an American urban legend, uh, the Jersey Devil is hard to beat. Oh, and, of course, you know, the original kind of the, 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 the urban legend story begins, you know, in the 1700s uh, with, with Mother Leeds. But this is a... a, a a creature, an idea, a concept that goes back to the Native Americans that were in that area. Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, that area has long been kind of considered. You kind of, uh, you know, talked about the uh, the Pine Barrens a little bit. It is a very unusual place. It's uh, southeastern New Jersey. It's about 2,200 square miles. Um, the area has never really been developed due to the uh, soil, which is apparently very poor in nutrients and also very dry. So their agriculture never really took off there. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of pine trees and um, thick forests and, you know, brush and so forth. Um, I, I've never had the, personally, I've never had the pleasure of being to the Pine Barrens, but I have friends who, who live and work in that area, and they, you know, they t always tell me that there's a really spooky feeling when you enter that that region um and you kind of referenced the, the bridgewater triangle earlier and there are other areas around north america that kind of have that mystique as well you know so i mean i guess you could say that you know considering the remoteness of the uh, pine barrens and and the, the the size of the area that there is a very small chance that there could be some living creature perhaps behind some of these stories something that we haven't found yet I mean, if we did, and it, and it looked anything like these, uh, like these descriptions have been, you know, that'd be a, a pretty unique combination of characteristics for for one. You know, I'd, I'd almost kind of worry about, wonder about what the evolutionary process was for this creature to exist. <laughs> it would be a tax uh, taxonomic nightmare to try to classify something with all of the physical traits that I just described. Now, 
The main thing that I would focus on is the wings. And in fact, I wrote about the Jersey Devil in my last book, uh, Encounters of Flying Humanoids. Even though it's not a humanoid, it kind of has the, the bat-like wings that are often described with many of these gargoyle-type creatures. Um, so in that respect, one interesting theory uh, that has come out is the possibility that the Jersey Devil, if it exists, could be some type of surviving pterosaur. Uh, the pterosaurs, of course, uh, most famous of which was, you know, the pteranodon. These were prehistoric winged reptiles that were contemporary with the dinosaurs, presumably went extinct 65 million years ago. But when you look at some of the, the early pterosaurs, they did, in fact, have the long forked tail uh, that has been attributed to the Jersey Devil. They did have the long rostrum or, or snout or beak, um, and they did have bat-like wings uh, in some respects. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a stretch, but, um, you know, you know, there's an interesting tie-in there, perhaps. I mean, I wonder, too, we, I mean, we have the Native American Thunderbird sightings here in the Bridgewater Triangle area, and I wonder if, even though the description is, is different, if maybe they're not kind of the same, at least the same legend, whether or not they're the same actual creature, but at least kind of the same type of story being spread from maybe one Native American tribe to another and then surviving uh, into when they were settled by the Europeans. Yes, perhaps. And in, in, in the cases of some cryptids that I investigate, there are widespread native legends, for example, that refer to the Thunderbirds, the giant winged, uh, feathered winged, uh, birds that, um, have a wingspan 15 to 25 feet across. You find representations of Thunderbirds on the Pacific Northwest, the Great Plains, the American Southwest, New England, and so forth. You also have, again, going back to Bigfoot or Sasquatch. You have many different native legends from different tribes of, about the, the so-called hairy man or uh, the wild man, you know, or the bush man and so forth. So, um, again, very, very compelling from an ethnological point of view. And one of the things that, you know, Chris wrote, wrote a, an article up on SpookySouthCoast.com earlier today about when he was trying to originally get you onto the show and it was kind of to debate the uh, the similarities and the differences between the Jersey Devil and Puckwudgies. And although you didn't see a lot of similarities between them, you know, Puckwudgies are something that you have looked into. Um, a little bit, but I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I do know a little bit about, I've heard a little bit about the Pugwudgie, but essentially it's described as kind of a diminutive human-like being with exaggerated features, a long nose, big ears, uh, kind of hairless and... Um, Shiny skin, is that the, the, the general description? That's, or kind, that's kind of one description. I mean, there's been a lot of different changes to that description. I mean, some will describe them as having hair. Some will describe them as not having hair. Uh, but kind of the, the idea behind it is originally they were kind of, you know, little like prankster-type figures. And then one day they turned evil. And they actually killed the, the Wampanoag uh, creator god, Mashop. Uh, they actually turned against him and killed him. And, and so they, they have kind of this mixture of a legacy of being, in some cases, you know, kind of just funny, weird trickster figures, and another being like the epitome of evil. And that's why I think, you know, people would kind of make that leap in their mind that they could be connected, because you're talking about something that's being referred to as a devil, and with the mother lead story, her saying that, you know, her 13th child will be the devil, that I think people have kind of tried to make that connection. Yeah, absolutely. And so I get your point. Um... So if these are essentially supernatural manifestations, then they, they most certainly could be related. But in terms of physical descriptions, they're very, very different. And that was one of the points I was trying to make, 
Now, you hit on a very key point, because when we're talking about a legendary creature, the more different types of descriptions or interpretations you have, the, the less likely it is to exist, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we were talking earlier about how the Bigfoot descriptions are consistent all around the world. Probably very likely that there's something to that. Then we talked about the Jersey Devil. Some people say it has horns, some people don't, some people say it, you know. Same thing with the Pukwudgie. You have all these different variations. Same thing with the Chupacabra, which is kind of the Latin version of the Pukwudgie, I would imagine. So all of these creatures are, are, are definitely uh, long shots, in my opinion. That doesn't mean there couldn't be some tiny grain of truth behind the legends, you know. Um, for some of your listeners who are, are interested in the supernatural, the paranormal, they're, they're most certainly could be a, a paranormal cause or reason to some of these creature legends. Um, you know, but as far as, like, trying to equate some of them to living animals, uh, it is difficult. Now, one, I know I'm kind of rambling, but one last thing I want to say about the Pukwudgies. It is true that, just like with the Thunderbirds and Bigfoot, that many different Native American groups have legends of little people, just like the little people that are described in fairy lore from Europe, little people that are described from Asia and Africa and so forth. And they are often viewed as tricksters, uh, kind of mischievous little imps that, uh, you know, the physical descriptions are often different. But, you know, they are essentially human-like. So, I mean, you have to wonder if there is a possibility that some of those legends uh, could be related to, you know, actual pre-human forms, many of which were very tiny, Um you may have heard of the hobbit or Homo floresiensis, which is a tiny little three-foot-tall humanoid. Uh, they found its fossils in, uh, on a small island in Indonesia. So we know at one point there were teeny little humans, and perhaps they were not uh, Homo sapiens in terms of intelligence and so forth. So, you know, maybe there's a connection there. And that's what I like. I like the fact that when you are able to, to take a look at these legends kind of across different cultures and across different geographical areas, you know, you're not so willing to dismiss them as being a common folklore. There must have been a reason why, you know, this imagery persisted in in different cultures that weren't connected or, or didn't stay connected over a long period of time. So there must be some reason. Either it goes back to, you know, very ancient times when everybody lived on Pangaea, or it is something that has persisted because there was originally some kind of truth in the legend. Yeah, well, you know, those are, those are the types of things that excite me, even though you have to look at, at things in terms of probability. You know, how likely is it that this scenario could play out? But it, it, it's unscientific in my view, and I'm, granted I'm just a pseudoscience, I only, pseudoscientist, I only play one on TV, but from my perspective, it's unscientific to completely rule out any possibility without exploring it, if there's even the tiniest grain of evidence, and we do have that evidence in terms of the legends. If there was one creature that you could kind of, ch did I cut you off, Moniz? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say he's actually correct. Well, this is coming from a scientist. And Moniz, you've actually done some some actual physical testing on some of these creatures and, and some of the remnants of well, them. So, so some some of the the things that they've left behind, like hair and yeah, uh, scat. And, I was gonna say yeah, you, yeah, you've done some poop work. I know you've done some poop work. <laughs> not, and not you know, I'm not I'm not saying that your work is poop. I'm saying that you've worked on poop. <laughs> okay, I'll leave just, it. Just clarifying. Yeah, I don't want you to take offense. Yes, where that is. But, uh, Ken, if you could kind of just, if, if there was one creature that you want to kind of zero in on and be able to 
find it and, and prove that it exists and, and, and document it and qualify it, is there one particular that's always caught your fancy? Well, um, that's a great question. People always ask me that. Uh, I've, a, a main focus of my research has been winged cryptids, and if I mentioned the Native American thunderbirds earlier. Um, those have always been fascinating to me. But in terms of if I was going to kind of stack the deck, so to speak, uh, the thing that I'd be most interested in pursuing right now is known as the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger, which is a uh, carnivorous marsupial, um, had kind of a form that was very similar to a dog or a wolf, but it wasn't exactly that. It was a, it was a marsupial. Uh, and it was known to exist or to live in, in, in the, on the island of Tasmania until 1936 when the last specimen died at a zoo. But since that time, there have been over a 1,000 documented sightings of these uh, thylacines on the island of Tasmania and also on the, the mainland continent of Australia. And so I, I think it's a, there's a very good likelihood, uh, and some of the sightings have been by very credible people, including park rangers and, and you know, wildlife workers and stuff. So um, if we could prove, if anyone could prove, that these thylacines were still out there, alive and well, and that they did not, in fact, go extinct, that would still go a long way in terms of opening people's minds to the possibilities that, you know, what else could be out there if this thing is still around. I mean, not to get all Dr. Ian Malcolm on you, but, you know, nature does find a way. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, this this is probably interesting to some of your listeners there on the East Coast. I mean, obviously the official stand is that uh, mountain lions, uh, Puma concolor, are extinct in the eastern United States, that they're only uh, still around, you know, kind of in the, in the western states. But you do have cases, and, in fact, one was roadkilled in Connecticut just a few years ago. So mountain lions are, in fact, in the eastern United States, you know. We don't see them. We might see, see evidence of their, you know, uh, passing through in terms of dropping some tracks and stuff from time to time or, or you know, prey. But um, uh, there are things out there. Uh, you know, we, we just don't see them, but they're there. So my Father's Day walk in the woods is now canceled? Well, we, do, <laughs> we did have a couple of reports in uh, the town over from where we are in Marion, of a cop seeing one out right on the edge of the bog, and in Matap- not Mattapoise, Middleborough, a horse was attacked, and they were able to measure the claw marks and did say that the, the only thing that could have done this could have been a cougar. Well, again, walk in the woods canceled. That's a little too close to home for me. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's, you know, we just tend to think, Ken, that we are kind of masters of, you know, masters of the earth and that we as human beings have kind of taken over. And, and I, I guess you would probably assume that's a pretty big mistake to make when you're going up against some of these creatures that we just don't know if they're out there or not. Well, the two points I always try to make when I'm introducing people to cryptozoology is, one, a large percentage of the Earth's land surface is still considered wilderness area, about 46%, according to one recent study, of all the land, we're not even talking about the deep oceans and lakes, we're talking about land surface, consider all the swamps and jungles, deserts, mountain ranges, uh, tundra, I mean, there are many, many places that people don't go very often. And the other thing to consider is that new animal species are still being documented all the time. In fact, uh, in at least a couple thousand every year, although most of those are very small, things like mollusks and invertebrates and stuff, we do occasionally find something very large and remarkable out there. So, yes, science is never, the scientific pursuit is a never-ending thing. Uh, Science books are constantly being rewritten. Theories are being overturned, and that's why we do the search. 
Is there any creature that if, you know, any fantastical creature that you would hope would be real? I mean, I know trying to find something that you think is, you know, legitimate that has existed and, and might make a comeback, but is there any fantastical creature that you would like to see actually be a real living thing? Wow, fantastical. Hmm. Well, um, you know, I guess the Jersey Devil would be pretty darn cool, uh, you know, if you want to go back to that one. Um, I don't know if I'd want to run into that thing. Right. That's the but, problem is, is if it was real, you'd have to actually get out there and try and categorize it and find it for yourself. And, and that's kind of a scary proposition with some of these. Well, maybe, uh, you know, on the positive side, maybe the state of New Jersey could, you know, turn the Pine Barrens into some type of large protected wilderness area and recreation spot where people could go out and look for the Jersey Devil. And, uh, you know, it'd be good for the economy up there. And, uh, you know, they've already got the hockey team. So, um you know, they got a head start. Maybe just unicorns. Unicorns would be okay. They seem pretty pretty tame. Until <laughs> I get yeah. gored by one. So I, I didn't think about one. that. Uni- unicorns would be pretty cool, too. Are you familiar with these things called Neary Pond? Neary Pond? Neary. Neary Pond. It's uh, Indonesia. Plant people. Oh, no, I, I, I don't think I've heard of that one. That's it. That, uh, you that's might want to look them up. They actually have a couple of remains. They're, they're about five, six inches, maybe up to eight inches long. They actually have physical samples, but they're being held basically by certain monks. There's certain samples that were taken. They are, they, it's a mixture of plant and animal from what they've been able to determine. Well, that is very cool. Yes, I will look into that. Thank you for sharing the tip. That sure. sounds like the new uh, reality TV show, Finding Plant People. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the story goes that these things were created to protect the Buddha when he was living in that area in one of his incarnations. And these creatures were made from the forest and were to, you know, lead people off, you know, away from where the Buddha was. I once asked a Buddhist monk about those, and he just looked at me and didn't say anything. Because there are there because he was on a vow of silence. Oh, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, so Ken, what what kind of project? I know that you have a, a couple of books out, as you mentioned, uh, but uh, what what current projects do you have in the works? Well, um, we've uh, I've been uh, organizing an event that's going to be pr- pretty cool. It's, uh, this is going to be August sixth, Saturday, August sixth, in the little town of Defiance, Ohio, and we're going to do the first ever Dogman Symposium. Dogman is one of the more whimsical zoo form creatures that has been reported around North America. Uh, there are legends that go back to the 1800s, but there have been a lot of modern sightings in places like Pennsylvania and elsewhere. And it is essentially a modern-day werewolf. That's what people are describing, a, uh, a large, hairy, upright creature with a head like a wolf. And uh, so it's... Uh, it's going to be fun because no one's ever done an event where you know where we talked about this particular subject matter. So it's going to be myself, uh, Linda Godfrey, Nick Redfern, Stan Gordon, Lyle Blackburn, David Weatherly, John Tenney. So all of us uh, very experienced in terms of investigating uh, the Dog Man and, and other weird creatures. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Anyone out there who lives in the Ohio area that. Uh, uh, you know, or just wants to go on a road trip and uh, go find out about modern werewolf sightings, uh, check out the Dogman Symposium. I also have a new book coming out. It's called A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts. Uh, it's a, it's available for pre-order on Amazon, but uh, it's not officially going to be released until September 8th. Uh, but that's a, a particular book. has got a lot of brand-new, firsthand, never-before-published eyewitness accounts of a myriad of mysterious creatures ranging from 
thunderbirds to black panthers to lake monsters, bigfoot, uh, giant spiders, even some really weird things in there, kind of more on the supernatural side. So. So, yeah, and that's what I just love about this field is that, you know, uh, really until until you're standing there and facing it down eye to eye, you really can't tell what, you know, what is real and what is legend. And and walking that fine line uh, must just be exciting for you as a researcher. It is. I feel very blessed to have had the opportunities that I've had and uh, work with some amazing researchers around the world. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, if you don't look, you definitely don't find so that's uh, kind of what keeps me motivated. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ken Gerhardt, for joining us again. KenGerhardt.com is the website. It's linked up to SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to check it out. So, Ken, please keep us up to date with all your adventures, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on when the new book comes out. Guys, thanks again for having me on. Uh, had a great time. Thanks to everyone who listened in, and uh, hopefully we can do it again real soon. Uh, you, and you stay safe out there. All right. Take you care. Too. That is, uh, again, Ken Gerhardt's website is linked up right on SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to check it out for yourself. I, I mean, I don't know. Some of these creatures uh, that um, could be actual, legitimate, real creatures, uh, and, and we've seen it happen, Moniz. You've, you've been talking about it for years, about you know, uh, telling us about some of these creatures that were said to exist, that they didn't believe were around anymore, and then sure enough, they Silicant. find a pocket of them. Yeah, Coelacanth would be one great example. And, and as Ken was mentioning, you know, the water being just a place where we're going to find the ocean. We're going to find so many things that we never even knew existed. They're still finding different stuff all the time out there. But it's a little bit different, you know, when you're reading about it or hearing about it, you know, reading a, an article or reading a science book. It's, a, it's another story when you're the one that's out there on the forefront of the research, actually boots on the ground out there looking for it. And that's why it's always fascinating to talk to somebody like Ken. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. If you would like to call in and share your thoughts on what we've been talking about tonight. Now, we did have the YouTube Live, I mean, the uh, Facebook Live going for a little while, Matt Costa. It looks like that's kind of... Uh, I believe it's back up, but I think we're having some audio issues. I, I think I fixed the audio issues because uh, the network was still in mono over here. Okay. So I unpressed that button. Maybe that fixed it. I don't know. Because we're, we're, it's only supposed to be in what? Program and audition? We're talking about technical stuff on the air, but like, is that is that right now? Uh, right, but... Um, it wasn't this before. I don't know what it would do, but I just... Yeah, I think uh, we just, this is kind of like a, uh, it's a, trial run. It's a live test right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a trial run. It's, right. not, it's certainly right. not right. the end product. I'm sure by next week everything will be ironed out. <laughs> we say that every week, though. <laughs> Right. I, I do think that, uh, you know, that we've been getting a lot of great feedback on the YouTube stream tonight. Right. So all the changes that we made, I think we should definitely stick with going forward. And uh, I actually love the fact that now with this new software, there's times that I'm not on camera. So I can, you know, pick my nose if I have to. Right. Or pick your right. nose if hey, I have to. You got to. Uh, but uh, certainly uh, tonight we've had uh, a bunch of great discussions. Uh, and one of the things that I, I want to revisit when, when we go down that cryptid path again, um, you know, Moniz, he's wearing the shirt right now. Was that planned? Was that because of the topic, yeah. or did you just happen to be wearing it? Both. Okay. Well, you know, he's got his Squatch Achusas shirt on right now. And you've actually had the chance to go out with these guys and, and look uh, for some yeah. stuff. Yes, I have. Um, they're good people. Uh, they're very dedicated to what they do. They um, take the, the search seriously. Okay. 
and they look into the backgrounds and stuff like that. They have access to rangers and other professionals to help them if they find, you know, evidence and stuff like that. Also to get them into certain locations. But that is also something, and we talked about this, you know, over the last decade with ghost research, is that because it's on television and because it's popular, you see a lot of people getting in and kind of flooding the field and maybe muddying the waters a little bit. And I think you're seeing a lot of that happen with especially Bigfoot research because there are all these shows where you're out looking for Bigfoot. And, you know, with a ghost, you have to find a location, talk to somebody who's had an experience, Try and track that experience, you know, try and track the research and the history of it. I know that when I, for a TV show that I would work for, I go to submit a possible location for filming, it has to have, you know, this sordid history and it has to have a lot of ghost interaction and reports. If you wanted to become a Bigfoot hunter, all you have to do is just walk out into the woods. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you want to call yeah. yourself one, yeah, that's really all you have to do. And I think that that kind of does muddy the waters a bit in cryptid research. Well, that's just Bigfoot research. Cryptids, you would be looking at all of them. Sure, but I mean, I, I just think that you can just, you know, throw on a backpack and some, some camouflage, although why would you wear camouflage in the woods? Bad idea. But I know that they do because they don't want the creature to see them. I'd be more worried about the hunters seeing me. <laughs> but, you know, they, they go out there and they do this and they think, like, that's all that it takes to be able to be a researcher. But all that makes you, I guess, would be a field investigator because you don't know what it is that you're looking for and you don't know... When you find, like, you want to be able, if you're going into this, I would assume, and I know that you have a little bit of a background in doing this, you want to be able to go into it knowing when you walk by something, okay, I can tell you what that is. You don't want the first piece of, you know, animal fur that you find or the first piece of scat that you find to make you start thinking, oh, this this could be it. This could be Bigfoot. Like, you want to be able to, just like a tracker, you want to be able to kind of know what it is that you're chasing down while you're chasing it down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Common sense. If you're if you're physically tracking it, seeing it, and tracking it, you know where it stepped. You know what it touched and stuff like that. That can be tested. That material can be tested. Uh, I mean, just walking out there blindly. If if you're not a, an experienced woodsman or you know tracker or been you know trained in the art of you know trail trailblazing and looking at the stuff, then yeah. It's going to be a lot more difficult. But you've actually tested some things over the years that did have you scratch your head. Yeah. Uh, I've gotten some pieces of hair that came back as unknown primate. I sent, you know, samples off to other people, and they they don't know what it is because it has uh, medulla. Uh, uh, the It basically looks like human hair, but it isn't, uh, as far as I was told. And... Um, some of the microbes, the gut microbes that were found in the scat. See, most people don't understand that there are microflora and fauna that are in your digestive system. Mm-hmm. And they have a specific genetic signature. Like these animals have this particular type, these animals have this particular type. And the microbes that were in there were from a primate but wasn't human. Now, we don't have any primates in North America that, you know, are indigenous. You know, somebody may have brought a monkey or right. whatever. And Which is that. Matt Costa's dream. Right. <laughs> but I'm saying we don't have any, you know, uh, real primates in North America. So right. whatever it was, it wasn't eating Activa. Yeah. <laughs> Activa. <laughs> <Pretty much. laughs> 
It, it will make all the Bigfoots regular. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, more than five, actually, in some cases. But one of the questions that, uh, you know, always comes up, and, and I'll, I'll have – I'll have Chris tweet this out if he's if he's still listening, and, and people can get involved with it on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive and following us at SpookySC. So I'll put the question we'll put the question out there on social media, but we'll also ask it here on the show. You can call in at 508-996-0500 or 877-996-1420. If we can, if if we can prove that one of these, we'll use Bigfoot. Okay, we'll just go with Bigfoot. If we can prove that Bigfoot exists, if we capture one on film that is clear as day, if we have an eyewitness, if it walks right by, you know, Ken Gerhard, Lauren Coleman, and the world's foremost regular zoologist, and they all stand there and come into agreement that, yes, this is Bigfoot. So now we know that it's real and that, it's exist, that it exists. What is the next step then? Uh, you know it's going to wind up, wind up being habitat preservation. You know they they do it for owls, they do it for you know turtles and various other things. So try and rope it off and essentially let it live its life where it is. You don't think people would want to capture it and put it on display? Oh, there's always going to be somebody that's going to try and do that. I mean, but you, you, you got to look at it this way: you learn far more about them letting them be where they are in their natural habitat. The the thing that hits me about Bigfoot, and again, we don't know that it's real, so we don't know exactly what its capacity is, but if, let's just say it's like Harry and the Hendersons, okay, and we can actually interact with it and talk with it and communicate with it in somehow, the same way we can with some primates. There are people that do. It, right, with, this, with, with sure, but if, if this being turns out to be sentient, and oh, can kind of, can uh, communicate with us and is aware of who it is and what its situation is. Then, don't you, you can't just capture it and put it on display, because then it becomes almost like a human being, right? And it's almost like you're enslaving a human being, or falsely imprisoning. Yeah, yeah. Either, but still, you're, you're taking it against its will and forcing it to live in captivity. We do that with other forms of life, but not. But it has to do with what level of sentience we attract to it, what, what level of intelligence we attach to it. Okay, your basic cetacean, which is uh, your your whales and your uh, dolphins and porpoise, they're not dumb. No, and I, I've always thought that they are at a level of intelligence that's probably too high to put them in captivity. You know, they are able to communicate. Yeah, they're able to communicate, and they know that they are captive. And I think when you get to that point, you can't morally do it anymore. Not to turn this into, you know, blackfish here, but (laughs) I'm just saying, like, I think that if it's at that level, then you have to say that it's it's morally wrong to do so. Now, that won't stop somebody from doing it because no. in, more than anything... Because money talks. It'd be a moneymaker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That'd be the biggest catch. I mean, well, just imagine if there's a Bigfoot exhibit at, you know, the San Diego Zoo. I was going to say, what do you do at that point? Do you give them, like, social security numbers or... Yeah, because then, it, you know, if it reaches that point where it's almost on par with human beings and it changes the way that you treat it and it causes all kinds of other questions and obligations, you know? Like, now you have to... Uh, you know, recognize it as its own sovereign being. And then how many rights do you give it as rela- in relation to that? 
So I honestly think, like, the best thing that can ever happen to us is to never find one. It's the best thing that can happen for it. It's the best thing that can happen for us because we would totally shred our humanity in trying to, you know, do whatever we're going to do with this creature. Whether it be kill it, whether it be capture it, it would it would take a piece away from who we are okay. in order do, to do it. Do you it. think we would eventually find it, like, based I, on the growth of the population? Like, would, is it like an, an inevitable... Either we're going to find it or I would just consume say, yes. every piece of land. As soon as South Coast Rail goes through the Hockamock Swamp, <laughs> they'll all come running out right. applying for jobs. Uh, th- this has been said by Lauren Coleman and a number of other people. We're not really going to know for sure until one gets hit by a logging truck and we got, we end up with a body. You know, or mm-hmm. some hunter, you know, think think they have a grizzly in their sights and turns out not to be. I mean, would, if something like that would happen, do you think it would be as big of a cover-up as, say, like a, an alien cover-up? Or Good question, Matt, because there are people that would want to keep this quiet, especially, like I said, if it happened in a logging road. You're looking right. at... Because yeah. we're talking about American jobs, too. Yes. Yeah, that would that would be the concern. Is like, well, now we know these exist. We don't know where they exist, so let's not cut down any more woods until we can figure it out. You, so you understand where I'm going with that? Yeah. So do you think it's already been covered up? I've heard that before, and um, I, you, you can't prove it. But I I would almost think, and maybe I'm off base on this, but I would almost think that the uh, existence of having an actual physical Bigfoot might outweigh whatever the income is you're bringing in with your with your logging company, your paper company, whatever. You know, I I almost think like that would be like a platinum card, but for they you. wouldn't be able to control because there would be signs that would be stepping in, there would be governments that would be stepping in. They already own the forest and they're already got the contract. You know, you understand what I'm saying? But science is only step. Science can only step in if it's allowed to step in. Uh, you'd be surprised. Well, because this is like one of the things that we, you, you weren't here the week we were talking about, but we were discussing, you know, if somebody was to buy the Amityville house because it's up for sale again, and if so, somebody dropped the $850,000 and bought the house, and it is this location that has such a history, are you obligated to let people come in and investigate it? Do you almost kind of have, I mean, and if you're into this, obviously if you're a private owner and you have no interest in the paranormal at all, and you don't care if it can get furthered or if a case can get debunked or proven or anything, then whatever, it's your house, you don't care. But if you're somebody who's involved in this, if you bought the Amityville house, would you feel like you had an obligation to let people come in and investigate it? Yeah, that's kind of a sticky one. Obviously, you would do it I yourself. I would, but I'm saying if somebody else... But would you want to have more documentation, more qualification for the things that you're finding or not finding? That's that's not that simple to answer, right? And that's kind of the the question that I've been going back and forth about it in my head. Not you know, not that you know we're we're all going to be ponying up eight hundred fifty grand. Like I said, like I said, it's not that it's not the eight hundred fifty thousand that bothers me. It's the twenty two thousand a year in property taxes that get you. No, I got you. Well, back to your question: Who do you let in? Who do you not let in? If you're going to let in one, everybody else is going to scream. Then why can't I? You know, and where do you draw the line? Who do you draw the line at? 
But maybe it's the same type of thing with trying to go in there and research if a Bigfoot is found because... Because that's going to bring the same thing. And you own the woods. You own the land. You've purchased the land. How do you decide who can come in? All of a sudden, that land can be taken from you by eminent domain if the environmental powers that be can... If they start putting in conservation and all that. Yeah, that's true. Because we see it happens around here with wetlands. Correct. You know, they'll they'll come and they'll take wetlands away from people. Now do you see what I'm talking about? It's a very, uh, uh, pardon the pun, hairy situation. I've read on the internet, and we know we all know how uh, accurate the internet is. But um, one of the theories is the reason why we have so many of these state parks around is that they're oh, if you're going back to that movie, that they're, the, the that they're Bigfoot, uh, four eleven, yeah, yeah, they're uh, uh, Bigfoot conservation areas. Are they conserva- so, conservation areas for wildlife? Period. You know. <laughs> If this Bigfoot thing is real, and it makes sense that it's going to go into an area that it, it, it can survive it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, bears moved right. into the same area, too, because they, they, they weren't building houses there. I think the theory was uh, it's, it's the government kind of set these up as national parks because they know about it in their conservation areas for wildlife. <laughs> okay. I was just doing an audio test on the YouTube, sorry. And it just, you know, it's just one of those things you're you're never going to know, you know, unless the government, if they did do this, comes forward and says they did it for this reason. But when, I, when have they ever done that? Yeah, they don't even own up to the stuff that we know about. They don't even <laughs> own up to the stuff that we watch them do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I do feel though that if if it did happen, and it, you know, if it's something that already happened and has been covered up, I, I almost like it wouldn't be an isolated incident. I've heard reports of it happening, like I said, in logging areas. I've heard um, military reservations. They there were encounters, and you know. Shots fired, type of thing. So if 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 it happened once, they would want to find a way to, to make it happen again, and I think that in a way they would kind of effectively learn how to avoid having them come out as well. You know what I mean? So they could be it, it, they, you know, the mysterious they with a capital T. They could be controlling these creatures enough to keep them from coming out into the light, so to speak. You know what I mean? Because you would. This would have been something they would have gone Why back to. Why are they to. controlling them for in the first place? That would be my question. Why do you need to control them? What, what, what's the purpose? What's the gain? Yeah. yeah. Uh, see, these are just the, the kind of... And this is like the questions that you ask when you're dealing with whether or not it's an actual living being. If you start getting into the supernatural aspects of it, the, the questions get even more crazy and out there. But these, just on a, on a basic physical level, like if it is real, these are some of the, the questions that would come up. You're controlling a con- creature that's hidden. I mean, what's the point of controlling something that, that nobody's going to be seeing anyway? Well, keeping it hidden. That's the problem. Is you know I, Okay. But again, what do you gain from doing so? Yeah. Like, what's the point? They go round and round in circles mm -hmm. with this. I I almost like the supernatural aspects of it better because at least those questions are a little bit easier to fathom for me, you know, a little bit easier to deal with. And, uh, you know, maybe the the, the T-shirt that the the paranormal 
uh, the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult carries. Weekendweird.com carries. Bigfoot is a ghost. <laughs> Maybe that's the better way to look at it because at least then it's not something that would bring up all these questions that would basically hurt our own humanity to have to answer. He explains the blurry pictures. Absolutely, yeah. And it, But he would also be, you know, the most successfully photographed ghost, too, I think, because, I've, you know, some of those Bigfoot pictures are still clearer than some of the ghost photos that I see. I can buy a Bigfoot in the woods more than I can an orb. Uh, orb? You mean Dustin Moisture? Hey, well. Out of focus. So uh, we do have a few moments in the show. If anybody would like to call in, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers. Uh, but, Matt Costa, I want to talk about something that um, you have recently yes. done a whole overhaul of the website of SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, yes, it's it's yeah. still a work in progress, uh, I know. Yeah, it's a constant uh, process, I guess. I don't know. But I, I think it looks fantastic. I think that although I'm having trouble getting it to go home just by clicking at the top, but uh, that might be our. I don't want to blame our internet because no, no, there's like no way to link it to home, like without just hitting back, like you know, like oh, on on the on the Ken Gerhardt bio page, I couldn't just click the spooky South Coast at the top and go back to the home. Oh, oh, but I can't. I see that now is clickable on this link. So you know, but again, it's it's kind of a work in progress, but. Right. But we do have a uh, we do have uh, a few new features, and that's that's what I want to talk to you about because one of these I think a lot of long time old school spooky South Coast listeners are going to be really excited about. What, what and are, that is the the forum. The forum, yes, right, right. Because we did we used to have a forum, uh, but I think it was on some one of those free. I think it was Pro Board. Something Everything like we do is on something that's free. Ah, uh, that's true. That's true. We have no money to put into the show. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the forum is there. Uh, we all, we have a login. I think uh, it's right on the front page of uh, SpookySouthCoast.com. And then you can uh, just click on the left-hand side. And there's, um, there's a drop-down menu. You can go to the forum. You can interact there. Um, <clears throat> if you have any ideas for um, some topics to discuss, you can also submit them. Um, right now, I think we, we just have a couple up. There's like a, uh, a share... Your evidence. You can put some uh, pictures, yep. some audio, and stuff like that. Share evidence. Show discussion is up there. Guest suggestion is up right. there. But it's really, it's really for you guys. You just have to um, uh, create a, a login. Um, then you can, um, after you create a login, you can also sign in with your social media account if you like. Um, if that's a little easier for, because I mean everything requires a password nowadays. So, uh, but we've got that. And and I, I think that, you know, you can bring back a lot of the feel of the old chat room, too, where it becomes like a community where people, I mean, the old forum, where it becomes a community where people can kind of go on right. and interact and share things kind of on a daily basis. I mean, it might be good for uh, people who are listening on the podcast who can't um, necessarily interact. We would hope that you would interact with us live. But if you can't um, interact with us live for any reason, you could go on there, post your questions. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer them. The, the question in the chat room, though, is does the Konami code still work? Uh, I think I had to disable that. Maybe, maybe I can get it working again. So you you still can't access the you, you can't access the old one. Uh, I'm not sure exa- the exact web address. You're thinking about the Konami code. I am. <laughs> you have to think about it. It's been so many years. 
No, I'm thinking about how you do it on the com- on the computer. Oh, oh, yeah. So it was up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. And B-A. B-A, and then enter, or space bar. Um, I don't think, you, you didn't have to hit enter. So then it's not it's not currently yeah. working, no. Uh, but uh, uh, I think we sacrificed that for the uh, the player at the bottom of the, the page as well. Bandwidth issues. We're going to do what we're going to do. Uh, but the <laughs> but I, I do like that, that that's back. Uh, we did say that we wanted to ask some people some questions. We wanted some feedback on some ideas that we had. Uh, we were talking about this earlier this morning, and we were saying, like, you know, the, let, let's just put it out to the audience what it is that they're looking for. And I don't remember what the question was that we were supposed to ask. <laughs> do you remember? Oh, well, we were talking about um, a little bit about the video. Um, do people like the multi-shot right, things, right. or do they want more of a TV-ish format? Yeah, that's the key question is on Spooky oh, TV. I think, I think today, I think I kind of blended the two together. I think well. it was perfect. I loved what we did, how you got, you know, like you got the, the, the... I like this new software. It's a little, it's jazzy. But you can still put stuff like up it. there. You right. can still put information up there on the screen for people. You're able to run that that uh, Ranger uh, um, Range 15 trailer during the during the news. It seems like this is a good mesh of everything that we kind of want right, to right. do. I, I think I apologize. I think I had two audios mixing at the same time as well. But it, we're all. It's a learning process. It is, and it would be a lot easier if we had like interns in here and other people doing all the work for us. But you know, we have to be. It's the, hard to get. Uh, College kids in here on uh, a Saturday night. I don't know. What else do they have going on, really? <laughs> it's like the chat room. You know, we, we, we tell people, like, please come and join us and be part of the chat room and enjoy the show live. And people are like, no, I can't be live on a Saturday night. I have things I have to do. No, you don't. <laughs> Tim, skip it. Other people have lives. No, skip it. Come and hang out with us. It's way more fun. But, yeah, no, I mean, that's... Yes. If you don't have anything to do on a Saturday night, which, I don't know. I don't. You don't. You don't. I haven't for a decade. So, <laughs> yeah. so but, we're all just hanging out. Come hang out. But that's that's what I think people uh, don't realize when they see all the technical stuff that's going on. We're trying to do all this while while we're also participating in the discussion. So it's not like we have somebody in here that's handling all this stuff and putting it all together. Like we're still actively involved in the discussion at the same time, and we can't really split our attention too much. So obviously, the discussion will always take precedence first and foremost. Right. But we're also trying to just implement all these new ideas and new concepts to the show because we're trying to get it out there. Maybe you are in an area where, you know, you have a, a town square media station. Write to them. Let them know that you want to hear Spooky South Coast on your local airwaves. And CC on us on the email, crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, so we know who you're talking to. And we'll see if we can get this out there and right. spread the spooky word. Right. You can go to uh, WBSM.com, send them an email, say that you like the show. That helps us out. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe. You can share our website, whatever you And speaking of subscriptions, if everybody that's listening can do me a favor, go to the Bristol County Media YouTube page. Look that up, Bristol County Media, and like, uh, subscribe to it on YouTube so that if they get a thousand subscribers, they can start offering the Bridgewater Triangle documentary via YouTube as a paid download, as a paid view, instead of having to, you know, go to some of these other streaming sites. You can get it right off YouTube. So go to Bristol County Media on YouTube and subscribe. That will certainly help them boost up. And you can, you know, subscribe to us as well. I think that about does it for this week's show. We will be back next Saturday night for another edition of Spooky South Coast. Until then, uh, definitely keep up to date with SpookySouthCoast.com all week long because there will be some changes coming. And we have all different things that are planned, including making sure you sign up for the mailing list. Make sure you do that while you're on there as well. So until then, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, for Chris, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular.